Hi, my name's Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. Uh, welcome. Happy 2021 uh, to hopefully the best sermon you've heard all year. Um, that's my standard New Year's joke, and I'm now out of jokes. Um, actually, I, I've got a confession to make. I'm not much of a fan of New Year's. In fact, I'm kind of the Scrooge of New Year's, which might explain why I hadn't been asked to preach here on New Year's for the last two or three years. Ross must really be scraping the bottom of the, the New Year's preacher's barrel. Um, so I apologize for that in advance. But I used to really enjoy New Year's, but as I've gotten older, I'm more prone to stay in and watch bad TV than go out and celebrate. And particularly in the middle of a pandemic, that's exactly what I did. In fact, as 2021 was ushered into the Hager house, uh, two of us were already asleep. Two were playing video games in separate rooms, of course. Uh, and I was working on this sermon. Actually, not really. Um, I was watching Tombstone, the great New Year's classic, uh, which is not bad TV. That's actually excellent TV. But so obviously it was a big party in the Hager house. No, um, no watching the ball drop, not even in the Eastern time zone. No 2020 retrospectives. I don't know if they even did those this year. I'm not sure anyone would want to watch that. No champagne, just another night. But really, what is it about New Year's? What is it about arbitrarily picking a day on the calendar and making a big deal out of that? Looking back 364 days, looking forward 365, and after 2020, you're probably not really looking back. You're probably actually planning out 2021. Looking forward to doing all those great things that you couldn't do in 2020, like you know, go to a restaurant or go see a movie or see people's faces from the noses down, all those great things. But regardless of how you celebrate New Year's, you wake up the next day and your weight is the same. You haven't exercised more, your job's the same, your kids aren't any better behaved. You see why I'm kind of a Scrooge uh, when it comes to New Year's. Um, which really, what's the point? If we're an average group of Americans, the research, whoever does this research, says that about half of us made resolutions for New Year's. And of those, half of you won't make it past the first two months. And ultimately, only 12% will actually realize their New Year's resolutions. 12%. 12% set out to what they said they would accomplish. Almost as bad as the Cowboys this year. You know, I saw a meme uh, yesterday that said, hey, shout out to all those people that resolved to eat healthy this year, and I've already decided to wait until Monday to start doing that. Didn't make it a single day. But what if you could set a resolution or make a plan that had a 100% chance of coming true, that'd make for an incredible self-help book? Well, I don't think the Bible is a self-help book. In fact, it's really a God-help book because of His grace. But our passage today gives us an answer to the challenge of how do you plan. So please turn or click with me to James 4, 13 through 17. That's James 4, 13 through 17. And while you're doing that, I'll preview how we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. First, we'll read the text together. I'll give us a brief introduction of James, and we'll look at a contrast of two ways of living. 
Two ways of approaching life, two roads of life, if you will. And then, practically, how do you apply that truth? The first way is in verses 13 through 14. It's what I'll call Arrogant Avenue. It's a catchy name. By its name, you should know that's a street you don't want to be on. And then the alternative is described in verse 15, and it's called the Humble Highway, which also is not a great name, but it's the one that we need to be on, but many of us don't want to be on. So let's stand together and read James 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Please be seated. The book of James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. It's in the epistle section of our Bible, but this letter was a circular letter. It was a general letter meant to be shared amongst many churches, not written to really a specific situation, but instead it was written to believers, and particularly Jewish believers who are spread out over the, the known world. And those believers share something in common with us, or at least something that's increasingly common, in that they live in a culture that was opposed to their faith. James writes this letter, and it's full of practical advice on how they should live, live together as believers, but also live in a world that is hostile to their faith. In fact, there's so great an emphasis on practical living in the book of James that Many people feel that it's really wisdom literature in the New Testament, kind of like Proverbs or Job. Our passage today, you see something that's common in wisdom literature. You see a contrast between how wise people live compared with how foolish people live. Arrogant Avenue versus the humble highway. So let's look at the first way of living. Arrogant Avenue, verse 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow... We'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. If James were a Texan, maybe he would have said, listen up. If he was from deep East Texas, he might have said, look here. Either way, he wants to get our attention. What does he have to say? Who is he talking to? You who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So he's addressing people who are likely traveling traders who move from town to town. They buy things that are common in one area, transport them to an area where those are scarce and they charge more. They were kind of the Amazon.com of the Near East back then. And unlike today, it was very expensive to travel between cities and move goods. So these traders are, more, uh, are likely more wealthy than most of James' readers. In fact, the level of wealth we have today is actually much closer to these traders than it is to the folks James was writing to. Now, before I was a pastor, I spent 17 years in the business world, six years longer than I've been a pastor, and verse 13 described my approach to life. 
Maybe it's yours. I had a plan, worked my plan. If my plan worked, I made a bunch of money. In fact, 11 years ago, I would have read this verse, just verse 13, and said, yep, that's exactly how you're supposed to live your life. Sound like maybe a New Year's resolution or our plans for 2020. And I've got to confess that I feel right at home on Arrogant Avenue. In fact, if I'm not careful, it is very easy for me to slip back into this way of living. So why do I call this Arrogant Avenue? For starters, that's what verse 16 says, referring to this way of life as boasting in our arrogance. So how are these merchants, these traders, these business people, how are they arrogant? There are five ways described in this passage that show how these folks are arrogant, and four in this verse alone. The first is timing, today or tomorrow. They set the day, no contingencies, no uncertainty. They're going to start immediately. And they know how long they're going to be doing this. They're going to be doing it for for a year, last a year. Yet we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less 364 days from now. Which is what verse 14 says. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. The message translation says it well. You don't know the first thing about tomorrow. And even if we did, we're not sovereign and we can't do anything about it. In fact, what this text says is we don't even know if we're going to be alive tomorrow. Anybody ever spent time in a desert to see how long the mist lasts? It's been cold the last few days. Go out when you can still see your breath. How long does your breath hang in the air for just a little while? This has always been true, but it certainly feels more true to us during a pandemic. When otherwise healthy people have gotten sick, some have even died. So first, they are arrogant in their timing. The second way they're arrogant is the place. They know which towns they're going to. Now, we get to travel, but many of James' readers were not exactly frequent flyers. They hadn't stored up a bunch of Marriott reward points. But these guys know the cities they're going to, and they've got their routes planned out. The third is the arrogance of purpose or activity. They know what they're going to do. They're going to trade. The fourth is their arrogance in the assurance of their results. They know they're going to be successful. They know they're going to make a profit. Arrogance in timing, place, purpose, and result. So why was 2020 so difficult for most of us? Because most of us live like the folks in verse 13. We expect that each day is going to be like the next. And then COVID came along, and all of a sudden, we didn't even know what we were going to do tomorrow. Do I have school? Is the office open? Am I going to leave the house tomorrow? 
We had to answer important questions like, where did all the toilet paper go? And if I believed my purpose was tied to a place, if I had to be in a particular place to do my, what I was intended to do, like a classroom or a salon or a restaurant or a church, how do I respond when I couldn't go there? And forget about results. You don't want to see the attendance graphs for Bethel. Um, all the ministry plans we thought we were going to accomplish, those didn't happen or even come close. You know, even our very lives in Western culture with advanced medicine and great doctors and nurses, most of us live like we're going to live in these bodies a very long time. And as COVID transitioned from something that was over there to something that was here, as we began to know people who got sick and recently maybe even those who've died, we began to live with the possibility that we might not actually live forever. But health issues aside, it's hard to make plans in the middle of a pandemic. Who's had plans messed up by COVID? Thanksgiving plans, Christmas plans, vacation plans. Have a kid who graduated from high school last year and started college this year. All messed up. I think that's why 2020 was so hard because James 4.14 is true. It's been true ever since James wrote it. It was true even before then, but it felt more true in 2020. We lived out verse 14, and we didn't really like it. And while some have been severely impacted by COVID, they've lost the job, their health, or a loved one, for many of us, 2020 was really more of an inconvenience. It was just a reminder that we aren't in control like we thought we were. And if that wasn't enough, again, for many of us, we elevated our inconvenience to suffering, complaining while zooming in our PJs from home, washing our hands, which I think like brushing our teeth is something we were supposed to be doing all along. And we suffered through the great indignity of wearing a mask for a few minutes or a few hours a day. But I think what I really learned in 2020, maybe you learned the same thing, is we really don't like anyone telling us what to do or not to do. It doesn't matter who they are, the president, the governor, Dr. Fauci, Judge Moran here locally, school superintendent, or even a pastor, or if we're honest, maybe even God. You know, I remember the first time I read James 4, 13, and 14. Or at least the first time I realized how true it was. It was 2009, it was before I came here to Bethel, and I just left a business meeting in Dallas with a super successful serial entrepreneur who I'd worked for several times. And every time we'd worked together, it worked out really well for both of us, financially at least. At the end of the meeting, this is what Randy said. He said, Fritz... I want you to come back to work for me. Here are the cities that I want you to cover. And let's just do it for a year. 
You're going to make a ton of money. And then you can figure out what you're going to do after that. And I said, that sounded pretty good. I'll think about it. But I was running late for chapel service at DTS, Dallas Seminary. Where I was a brand new part-time student. So I ran back to my car and I drove actually 0.4 miles. They were actually on the same road on Ross Avenue down to DTS and stepped foot on campus for the first time, walked into chapel service, and Chuck Swindoll said, open your Bibles and turn to James 4.13. And he said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go, yet you do not know what tomorrow brings. If this were a cartoon, the word bubble would still be floating up in the air. And my heart stopped. Felt like it did. In that moment, I knew what King David felt like when Nathan wagged his finger at him and said, you are that man. That arrogant man. That man who makes plans. Way out in the future. The man who assumed I'd always be a business guy. The man who was always confident in results. I am that man. And I remember a call three months earlier from a friend from West Point who'd moved to Tyler and become an elder at Bethel Bible Church. He told me that he was in the shower that morning, which was an awkward detail to include. You're talking to another guy. He's praying about Bethel and the open executive pastor job. And he told me that he thought the Lord told him that it was me. That I was that man. I burst out laughing. Because that was the dumbest thing I had ever heard in my life. Because even though I was a student at DTS, I was just taking a couple of online classes so I could be a better dad, better father, and a better fourth grade Sunday school teacher. Being a pastor was inconceivable to me, and even more so for my wife, Serena. And my friend laughed too, but he asked me to pray about it, so I did the Christian thing I prayed about exactly one time, so I didn't lie to him, and then promptly forgot about it. Living on Arrogant Avenue. So what's the alternative to Arrogant Avenue? What does the humble highway look like? Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. It's not a magic phrase. You don't have to tack this onto the beginning of all our prayers so that we know that they'll come true. Notice it doesn't say they don't plan. These people have plans. So is it business that's bad? Is it trading for a profit that's bad? Now, I mentioned earlier there were five ways I thought these business people were arrogant. Four in verse 14, the arrogant, the timing, the place, the purpose, and the results. And here's the fifth, and perhaps the biggest source of arrogance. These plans are not submitted to the Lord. It's their plans. What they're going to do, where they're going to do it, the results they're going to achieve. The problem is, it's not his plan. It's not that business is bad. It's not that planning is bad. Just good news for the guy on staff who does planning and budgeting. The problem is not submitting 
our plans, our desires, and our hopes to the Lord. In fact, that's exactly what James says early in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Verse 15 shows not just a difference in words, but a difference in perspective. These people recognize their dependence on God for their very life and for their next breath. They recognize the brevity of their life. They recognize God's sovereignty and His concern over the details of their life. And look at verse 16 and 17. In wisdom literature, you often see the results or the fruit of wise living spelled out here. But James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is saying arrogant planning is not just unproductive. It's not that their plans fail. It's not that they are in that 88% who don't keep their New Year's resolutions. It's that they're boasting. They're arrogant. And James says that's evil. Maybe you're like me. You read this and say, well, James, that's a little harsh. Unwise, maybe. Foolish, yes, but evil? And I checked in the Greek, and it's still evil. Not just bad, evil. So why is that? What makes this way of living, what makes this type of planning evil? I think it's idolatry. And maybe you read back through and say, gosh, there's no statue there, there's no graven image, there's no worship. Where's the false god? You know, the first commandment of the 10 from Deuteronomy 5 verse 7 is, you shall have no other gods before me. The planners, the business people, they see themselves as God. In fact, you could go back and reread verse 14 as a checklist to see if you're playing God in your life. If you've made yourself God. If you believe that you choose the time, the place, the purpose, and the result, even believe you're promised or guaranteed the next day of life, then you're playing God. If that's you, you fall into one of two categories. One, you might be an atheist. You might believe that there isn't a God out there, that we are truly free agents on our own. Or maybe you're a practical atheist. You do believe in the one true God. Someone asks you the question, who is God? You can answer. He's the creator of all that is seen and unseen. He's the eternal triune God, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what practical difference does that make to you in the way you live? Let me ask the question a little differently. Not just who is God, but who is God to you? Personally. See, your life giver. See, your purpose giver. See, your Savior. See, your Lord and Master. Or is he a crutch? 
See the God of Jesus take the wheel. Somebody you turn to when life doesn't turn out like you want, when you're in trouble. I don't want to be too critical of Carrie Underwood as a theologian. Sorry in advance if this is your favorite song. Don't send me any hate mails. The song went triple platinum. It sold almost 3 million copies. And the official video has been watched over 68 million times on YouTube. It's a good song. But it's not great theology. Exactly, and it's exactly how I lived, maybe how many of you have lived, most of my adult life. Doing what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, how I wanted to do it, enjoying success. And I thought as long as I didn't do the things the Bible said you shouldn't do, that I was okay. That God didn't really care much about the rest of the details. If I suffered a setback or a failure of my plans, I'd say like the woman in the song, I'd take my hands off the wheel and say, okay, okay, Jesus, you fix this. Here you go. But James ruins that for me, maybe for you too. It, is, it wasn't just a list of things not to do. It's not just a list of wrongs to avoid. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. I told you about the first time I heard James 4.13, but I didn't finish the story. Sitting in chapel at DTS, I remembered that call from three months earlier. In the words of James, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. And I thought for a moment, what if the Lord's will for me was to move to Tyler and be a pastor at Bethel. As I thought about that, I was convicted about two things very quickly. One, the first was that my plans for my next job were not fully submitted to the Lord. I'd always assumed it'd be another corporate gig, another company. And although I'd certainly pray about which one, I'd never considered or prayed about that God might have something else for me to do. The other thing I was convicted over was that I really didn't want to consider it because of the financial and lifestyle changes that it would require. I was comfortable. My family was comfortable. And I knew I was going to take a massive cut and pay. Even though Bethel is generous to its pastors, Bethel doesn't pay CEO money. And I realized that I was valuing my comfort and my money over submitting to the Lord. Valuing that over drawing near to God felt very earthly as I thought about it. So I felt just enough conviction to talk to Serena about it and then called my friend, the elder, really hoping that they'd filled the job in the three months since we'd last talked. But four months later, I was standing on this stage in front of Bethel explaining why I thought God was calling me and my family to Tyler to be a pastor here at Bethel 11 years ago last May. But I've got to confess, there were times I would describe my submission in that process as begrudging at best. God had to make it abundantly clear to me and Serena that this was what he wanted us to do. And what James is talking about here is not begrudging submission. 
He's actually talking about the humility to prefer God's will for your life over your own. Which, if I'm honest, it's something I still struggle with even today. Which is why I'm kind of a little bit thankful for 2020. Just a little bit. Because it reminded me how easy it is for me to slip into a verse 13 way of living. And when COVID arrived, I felt more like little kid in my house saying, you're not the boss of me. And not very much like the guy says, who says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So how about you? I told you wisdom literature in the book of James, we're supposed to be practical. So what do we do with this? How do we know what God's will is for us. What is God's will for me or for you? But before I answer that question, I have to tell you that in some ways it's kind of a bad question, the wrong question. And it actually kind of betrays our arrogance and our often self-centered nature of prayer. What is God's will for my life should be overshadowed by a more important question. The better question is not what's God's will for my life, but simply what is God's will? That question brings much greater clarity to what God would have us do. And what is God's will is much more easily discerned than the question what is God's will for me? How easy is that? Well, let me share something with you that I learned teaching fourth grade Sunday school. The ABCs of discerning God's will. A, you thought I was kidding. This is literally the ABCs. Ask God. Pray. James had a nickname, tradition says. They called him Camel Knees, Old Camel Knees. Would you have ever seen a camel? It's not exactly a compliment for his appearance. They called him camel knees because James would go to the temple every day and get down on his knees and pray for hours until his knees had huge calluses on them. He humbled himself both in posture and perspective. He asked God. In fact, that's how the book of James starts and ends with an admonition to pray. Chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... Ask God. He ends the book at the end of chapter 5 by saying, if you're suffering, pray. If you're sick, pray. When you sin, pray. Don't just tell God what you want to do. Ask Him what you should do. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. Test those plans in prayer. A is ask God. B is biblical guidance. God's will is revealed to us in Scripture. You want to know the purpose of our lives? It's in here. His will is for us to know Him, to receive His grace, and to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
His will is for us to grow, to become more like Jesus. His will is for us to be continually transformed into his likeness. His will is for us to show the world, starting right here where we are, his great love. His will is for us to worship him, to become his disciple, to live as missionaries for his glory everywhere we go. That's his will. Be biblical guidance. See counsel the wise. You need to have other believers, wise brothers and sisters who you seek advice and counsel from. And Bethel is blessed with a ton of those folks. Because sometimes we hear things in prayer or read things in the Bible incorrectly. Sometimes what we think is God's will might even be against his revealed will. The best check on us confusing our will with God's will is the counsel of others, the counsel of the wise. So ask God, biblical guidance, counsel the wise, ABC. God's will is for us to know him, to receive his grace, and to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that starts with humbling ourselves to admit we can't fix our biggest problem. Which isn't we can't lose weight in 2021, exercise more, try harder. Our biggest problem is our sin problem. The admission that we've fallen short of God's standard, we've done things we shouldn't, we failed to do the things we should, and that sin has messed up even how we think, and how we see the world, and that we need a perspective change. In fact, it's worse than that. We need a new mind. We need a transformed mind. We need a new heart. God has to take this heart of stone out of us and give us a heart of flesh. And we can't do that by ourselves. It's not self-help, it's God-help. Fortunately, he has. Son of God came down to earth as Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, yet fully man. Lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling perfectly the will of his Father. Not just not doing the things he wasn't supposed to do, but perfectly doing the things he was supposed to do. Which ultimately led him to a cross where he died a painful, gruesome death as an innocent man carrying the sins of the world, our sins on him. And it's because of God's grace and through our faith or reliance or trust in Jesus to do what is impossible for us to do that we have life. We have joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of hard times. And it's that perspective and that faith that can help us weather a year like 2020 and to say truly as we begin the new year, if the Lord wills. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that you are 
all-knowing, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, Father. We confess that we sometimes don't live like that, with that truth front and center in our lives, and that it's easy for us to slip into a way that might even look like we view ourselves as God. So, Father, we confess that and repent and ask that your Spirit transform our minds, that you soften our hearts, you humble us where we need to be humbled. And, Father, for those who maybe don't believe that you are God, they don't believe that you sent your Son to make a way for us to have peace with you, to have life, to have this different perspective, an eternal perspective. Father, I just pray that you would move in their hearts as you've said you can do and have shown that you can do. Soften them, humble them. And if there's those here at Bethel who can play a role in that by pointing them to the truth, to reacting to the events of the world in a way that is different, causes them to ask, I pray that you would create those kinds of opportunities for our congregation. Pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, in the power of your spirit, amen.